about two or three minutes into that interview, that officer confirmed to me what I had, you know, in my heart of hearts known to be true, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had perished. And he informed me that another person was being driven by ambulance to the hospital just blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest and I'm put into the back of the cruiser and we head downtown for processing. And I don't know, I'm listening to the police radio from the back seat and there's a lot of you know chatter about the crash, obviously. And about 10 minutes into that ride, it comes over the police radio, at least what sounded like, that unbeknownst to me, there was another passenger who was in the vehicle who died at the scene. And I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did they just say that somebody else was in that vehicle and they didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. So there's now two people dead. Another with life-threatening injuries who could lose his life, you know, any day on one hand. And then on the other hand, I am keenly aware, having been in the system already, of the mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the state of Oregon that require no ifs, ands, or buts about it, absolutely require a mandatory 10-year sentence day for day for DUI manslaughter. Oh my God. And now I've got two of them. So I know as I drive past my parents' block for the final time that I'm not gonna see this neighborhood for about the next 20 years. Oh my God. Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you so much for joining me for part two of Martin Lockett's interview. If you did not listen to part one, go back and listen to part one. Man, you guys love that episode. And listen, as much as you love part one, I know that you're going to love part two even more. So part two picks up exactly where we left off. He is in a cop car, having had been arrested, passing his childhood home, knowing that as a result of just causing two fatalities because of driving while intoxicated, he is not going to see his street nor his family home for about another 20 years, which turns out to be pretty close to accurate. We talk about his time incarcerated and more importantly, what he did while incarcerated, the education that he got, the volunteer work that he did. And you guys, I learned so much from this conversation. Martin is so well-educated not just in recovery and he does know so much about recovery he talked about the four like psychological pillars like the internal pillars of recovery he calls them anchors and how and why they're important and like i know 12 step stuff but i love learning and understanding the next level of it and we talk about that but he also is really well educated and well versed and taught me a lot about the concept of counterculture which is the phenomena in mostly minority communities where a culture is developed around and in response to feeling left out of opportunities and the impact that that can have on young people as they're growing up and more importantly how communities can respond to the impacts of counterculture and set up their youth for success. We had an amazing conversation. So please, you guys, beyond listening to this episode, connect with Martin on Instagram. One of my favorite guests I've ever had. I can I can say that hands down. Prison of Purpose Pipeline book was amazing. Follow him on Instagram. I watch his clips from his interviews. I just, I, I can't say enough good things about this guest. Follow him and let me know what you think of part two. I know you guys are going to love it. Did you feel in that moment, did you feel like you had sobered up? You know how, it's, how sometimes when you have police contact, you immediately get sober. Did you immediately get sober or did you still feel drunk as you were going into the hospital to get your blood drawn and stuff? I was very much intoxicated. And yeah, we did have to go to the hospital because anytime, anytime there's a fatality, they draw your blood, right? And initially I had refused. I don't know why, I just refused. And they had to get a judge to sign the, the warrant to come and draw my blood and all that. The DA had gotten out of bed at, 1 15 in the morning to come down to the hospital and you know this whole thing and then i'm finally booked into custody at like three or four in the morning and they sit you in a drunk tank by yourself while they're processing all the paperwork and everything and um i remember 
I've only told this part one other time. So here's another rare moment for me, but I'm in that drunk tank and I'm by myself and anybody who's been locked up, you know, it smells terribly and there's, you know, stuff scrawl all over the walls and graffiti and racist stuff and just whatever. And I'm on this concrete slab. And I am telling you that there was a supernatural presence in that cell, in that place with me because there was this huge relief that swept over me because I knew in that moment that I was never going to be a slave to alcohol again. I knew that that was it. And and the reason why I don't tell that story that often because this is on the heels of two people just losing their lives, right? So how dare I feel any sense of relief in that moment, right? But I'm telling you, I knew that I knew that I knew that I was never going to touch alcohol again. And that I was finally, I felt like I was rescued in a sense, if I'm being honest with you. I really did because I knew I couldn't quit alcohol by myself. At least I didn't believe I could. And so unfortunately it took an utter tragedy to get me to where I am today. But, um, so you was, never drank again. Is that your sobriety date? 100% January 1st, <gasps> January 1st of 2004. Wow. So you yeah. never drank in prison. You didn't do the hooch thing or anything. Absolutely not. Never had a desire. It was, it was, it was everywhere. Right. right. I mean, in prison, everything that's out here is in there. And so right. guys made the pruno and, you know, you see guys getting drunk and smelling it and no, because I was so committed to my purpose and we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute here, but I was on a, I was mission focused and mission driven for 17 and a half years. Let's talk about that. So you end up, you're sentenced to 17 and a half years and guys, I really do. I, I, I read the book cause there's a lot of additional stuff in here that we're not even hitting on. You had a son who died in high school, right? Like now, and then the sentencing process is insane. His parents pay for a lawyer. It's just read the book. Cause there's like more to this story than we're even able to get to. And that's one of the other reasons why I loved your book. There's even more here, right? There's more, but let's get into what you just said. The purpose that came out of this tragedy, because you are the epitome of why I do this show. The reason I do this show is because I believe that the tragic events of our addiction caused by us or not caused by us do not have to define our lives as tragic. And we can leverage those experiences into something positive. And that is exactly what you've done. So talk to me about the next 17 years and and the article that you read that changed your life. This writer changed your life unknowingly. 100%. So three days later after this tragedy, I'm in my cell and I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone has slid the Oregonian newspaper underneath my door. And I couldn't understand why, because I didn't ask anybody to see a paper, right? But I figured there must be something in here that I should read, right? So I pick it up. I begin to thumb through this paper. And I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And with each paragraph that I read that morning, for the first time in days, my faceless victims became people. And these people had a story. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had managed to turn their lives around and were now helping other people get clean and sober. So they would watch women's children so that these ladies could attend AA and NA meetings. They were volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, no less. They were celebrating at a clean and sober New Year's Eve party the night that this tragedy happened when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the columnist had talked about the irony, called it a palpable irony, that these people who had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober would have their lives cut short by a drunk driver. And what he said at the end of the article changed my life forever. He said, quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. And it was such a heavy statement, but... I couldn't fully appreciate in that moment, you know, the value in what he had just said, because I'm still grappling with the fact that I'm going to go to prison for like 20 years. So I don't really know how this is supposed to help me. Right. But it was also something I couldn't ignore. And so I would literally 
you know, pray about that, that statement and how I was supposed to apply it to my life, what it was supposed to mean for me. I would meditate on that phrase and hear it over and over and over throughout the day. And then it finally came to me about seven or eight months later, it finally came to me that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain and, and remain a simple tragedy is if I carry on their legacies. If I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to not just ensure that something like this never happens again, but to help anybody who is struggling in active addiction so that they don't have to continue to cause further harm to themselves and their families and everybody who cares about them. So if that was the way that I was going to honor their legacies and the work that they were doing, then I was full in committed. And so that's when I made the decision that I was going to make this my life's mission. Now, I didn't know how that was going to unfold. I didn't even know how long I was going to be in prison at that time. I knew it was going to be a long time. I just didn't know how long. I didn't know what opportunities would be available, you know, in terms of, you know, this mission. But I knew that I was I was I was committed. Right. And that's what that's what started me out on this journey. So a few months later, I, I take the plea bargain for 17 and a half years. And, you know, we go into the courtroom and it's packed. There's media, and, you know, uh, mad people from the mad community, friends and family. And after we go through all the formalities of the case, the judge announces it's time for victim impact statements. And I remember the first person that spoke that morning was the lone survivor of the collision. He was a middle-aged man. And I remember that all I kept telling myself before he spoke was, Martin, make sure you look him in the eye when he speaks, because you at least owe him that much. And as this man began to speak, I remember I was so overcome with shame and guilt that I had to look away. And I just stared, stared blankly at the table in front of me. And he proceeded to tell me, he said, you have no idea what you have taken from me. He said, I just proposed to my fiance earlier that evening in front of all of our friends. And hours later, she died in my arms. He said, due to the severity of my injuries, I can't even play catch with my nine-year-old son anymore. And you, you're just a young man. And when this is all over with, you're still going to have your whole life ahead of you. But me, I feel like mine is over. And quite frankly, I wish this judge would impose the maximum amount of time by law. And so I knew, you know, this man was angry and he was hurt and he was devastated, but I knew that he was justified in saying everything that he did to me that morning because I'm the one who made a choice that changed the course of his life forever. And so when he was done speaking, I tried to mentally prepare myself, brace myself for the onslaught of condemnation that I knew was going to come from other speakers that morning but I had no idea what was about to happen next. And the next person to speak was the 15 year old daughter of one of the victims. And she was so eloquent and just so amazing. And she proceeded to tell me, she said, Mr. Lockett, I forgive you. I know you did not mean to do what you did that day. And a part of me feels sorry for your family because you're gonna go away for a really long time and they're gonna miss you so much. And I encourage you to hug your mom every chance you get because you never know when it could be your last. And she went on to tell me, she said, my mom was my best friend. And now she will never see me graduate high school. She will never see me get married. And she will never see me have kids. And when this young lady got done speaking, for the first time in nearly a year, I had come to understand that I had taken away a lifetime of memories that will now never get to happen for one night of fun. So when everybody was done speaking, I stood up and I told the courtroom, I said, you know, my indictment says that I acted with extreme indifference toward the value of human life. But I can assure everyone here that my feelings have been anything but indifferent since the day this happened. And I know it doesn't mean a whole lot, I accept that, but I promise to spend the rest of my life doing everything I can to prevent anybody else from feeling what you guys are feeling in this moment. So with that, I was sentenced to 17 and a half years, day for day, and I started on my, my journey of fulfilling this mission in state prison. And 
that the work you did in prison is so significant. Why don't you tell us about that? The classes you started doing, the understanding you started doing, processing of your own life growing up. Just walk us through that. Sure. So I knew if I was going to help people with addiction, then I had to get an education uh, to become a counselor. So all they were offering at the time were um, community college courses. You could take one at a time for 25 bucks. And so I figured if I if I just take enough of these, maybe they'll give me a degree at some point. I don't really know how this works, but I started doing that. And then I tragically lost my father three years into my sentence and but with that happening I was able to you know get the funding through his pension and life insurance money and stuff like that to start taking classes from major universities you know through distance education so I started taking classes sociology classes and psychology classes from Louisiana State University and Indiana University and I kind of parlayed all of that into an associate's degree in 2010 from Indiana University. And then I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State University. And then I ended up getting a master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. And as I'm taking these classes and I'm learning from a sociological, environmental, societal standpoint, um, you know, the, the, the reasons behind my addiction, the reasons behind my lack of a self-concept, the reason behind my negative behavioral patterns that were reinforced, right, in the environment that I lived in. I learned from a psychological standpoint about the stages of psychosocial development. And the most critical one, for me anyway, was the identity versus role confusion stage, right? And where you try on different identities and and, and you figure out who you are and where you're going to be in this world. But the lack of, of, of establishing a, a real identity that you can be comfortable in leads to what they call role confusion. And so at that point, you're you're at everybody's mercy to become whoever they want you to become, right? Unless you establish that for yourself. And so I'm starting to unravel the layers of where it all began for me. And it's starting to make a lot of sense, right? And so I'm now using that because I'm also tutoring young guys in the GED program. But I started to use my education and my experience to start to have kind of mentoring sessions with these young guys and talk to them about life and real life issues. And as you can imagine, prison is not the safest place to be vulnerable and talk about childhood trauma and being molested as a kid and things like that. You just don't do that. But I'm telling you guys would seek me out because they saw the way that I conducted myself and they saw the way I was consistent in doing my time. And they felt that I was a trusted person to be vulnerable with. And so I would have candid conversations with guys I'm, as I'm walking around the track or you know, lifting weights. I spent a lot of time by myself. I didn't want to get affiliated with this group or that group, you know, and um, and it led to some really, really valuable interactions with with guys. And we'll talk about what they want to do when they got out of prison. I would, you know, guys who had never accomplished anything and I'm walking them through each GED test till they finally graduate and their parents are coming to their graduation and just in tears and so proud of their sons for setting this goal and accomplishing it. And just turn over a whole new leaf in life. And, and you know, to know that I was some small part um, in those successes really meant a lot to me. And it just reaffirmed that, you know, service work and being of service to others and counseling in particular was exactly where I needed to be. And so I knew that, okay, I've got the education now, I've got the master's degree, but I still need, I still need the actual clinical hours to get certified as a counselor. And so with that, I was able to transfer to the one prison which is a whole nother discussion as to why there's only one prison with a substance abuse treatment program to, you know, available to inmates when we know that roughly 80% of us who are incarcerated are there for some reason or another, you know, pertaining to drugs and or alcohol. But I transferred to that one prison and I talked to the clinical supervisor and I tell them what my goals are and I've got all this education, I've invested all this money and time. And, and I said, well, if I work under you, can I, can I get certified? You know, can I get the thousand hours that I need? He said, well, we don't really have a you know a program like that. But he said, tell you what, let me talk to my boss and see if we can get some red tape cut and see what happens. Long story short, they approved me to work as an intern. But first, I had to go through the program as a participant. 
And by this time, I have a master's in psychology. I'm thinking, okay, I'll go through your little program for seven months. Not going to learn a whole lot, probably. But if I need to do that to get to the next step, then fine. Let me tell you, it was in that program that I learned the difference between sobriety and recovery. Wow. Up to that point, I thought that I was in recovery. I hadn't drank in, you know, 12, 13 years or whatever. And I had all this education, done all this work on myself. I'm in recovery. No. I was just sober, right? I just hadn't drank. There was so much more to learn about. I learned about, you know, the bio, psycho, social, spiritual model of, of recovery and, you know, having the, you know, having anchors in your recovery and learning about relapse warning uh, signs and the triggers and the internal triggers and the external triggers and creating a relapse prevention plan and, you know, uh, um, you know, just just all of these facets of recovery. That it's this concerted effort. It's not just the absence of the substance, right? It's an active, continuous, perpetual, you know, showing up every day to be a part of your recovery and this newfound journey and lifestyle, right? That is a balanced approach across the board, right? That gives you strength and, and solidarity in your, in your recovery. And so I learned about all of that. And uh, I ended up getting certified as a recovery mentor in 2018. And then I got certified as a substance abuse counselor in 2019. Meanwhile, I started to tell my story about um, uh, about my, you know, the, the, the crash. And I'm, I don't call it an accident because, you know, accidents are completely preventable. Drinking and driving and crashing into another vehicle is preventable. And so I started to tell my story at DUI victim impact panels within the prison. So they started a program in 2015 where they would bring in volunteers from the community who had lost a loved one to a DUI crash. And they would tell their story amongst 50 inmates sitting in a circle. Everybody's there voluntarily. And then after they would speak, then one of us from the inside who were there for a DUI crash would tell our story, right? Taking full accountability and remorse and contrition and all of that. I'm sorry, this whole time you're in prison, all yes. the things you just said, your masters, your associates, the inter the whole time. So, and I want to remember exactly where you were. You were talking about the impact groups. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I got you're to good. ask you this. How do you do school? Because I remember in your book, the woman that helped you was like, it's all snail mail. Does that mean you with a pen and paper, fill out an exam and mail it and someone grades it and then they mail you back and they mail you books because you, what? Exactly. No, you, you're absolutely right. So- Oh, that's nuts. So, How long does that take, dude? <laughs> so, so I started this journey of education in 2005 and I got my master's in 2016. So what Holy is that? Holy shit. Uh, nine years. Yeah. So you fill out an exam. How right. long would it take you to get the grade oh, back on the average? Oh, exam? that. Okay. So, so yeah. So, so my, my fiance, the person I live with now. So we did six, she did 16 of that 17 and a half years with me, which is a whole nother story. Yeah. Read the and, book for that guys. Read the book. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but no, so she did all the legwork. She contacted the schools. She, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, physically made the payments for me and would order my books from Amazon. Thankfully, we could get used books, so I saved some money that way. But she had to contact the school to have the exam sent directly to the education department because they had to be proctored. And so they would proctor the test for me, put me in a room by myself. I'd take the test with the pen and paper and then give it back to the education department and they would mail it back to the school. And then when the school would get it, then after they graded it, thankfully, they had an online portal. So my fiance, I would call her and have her go on in, in the portal and check my grade. Okay. And then they would physically mail it back a couple of weeks later. But by that time, I already knew what my grade was. So, wow. yeah. Wow. That's so, I'm glad that that's available. I've heard you say on another podcast that that is unfortunately not widely available. So. Well, you have to have the money. I mean, I pay for my education entirely through the funding, you know, that I got from my dad. I mean, you're right. talking tens of thousands of dollars right. that people just don't have sitting around to, to spend on their loved one in prison. Right. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, let me say this, thankfully, a lot of people don't know. So the, the pale grants for incarcerated people went away in the in the mid 90s during the whole tough on crime era right when they signed the bill 
It took away all the federal Pell Grant money for prisoners. Thankfully, it is coming back in January of 23. Oh, it is amazing. coming back. So it actually was signed into law. So when, when President Trump actually signed that last stimulation bill right before he left office in 2020, buried on page 967 of that bill was the reinstatement of the federal Pell Grant money for those who are incarcerated. So that'll be happening. Oh, that's so cool to know. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I'm so glad that you were able to do that. I, I'm so glad that you were able to do that. But again, even right there, that piece you said is so important. And I feel like people can be so insensitive to this that sure, you had the drive. You happen to get that money from your dad, man. So many people do not have access to the same resources and the path that that cuts for you can be so different. Like this is just, these are just, you know, the facts. You mentioned role confusion in the identity process. Right. Give me an example of that. What do you mean by that? I'm, I'm fascinated by that. So for people who figure out who they are, what their identity is, they figure out what their role is going to be in this world. Right. So for some people, they go, you know, they're an artist. Right. I'm an artist. That's part of my self-concept. Right. So what does an artist look like in the world? Oh, well, maybe I, you know, go into performing arts or I, you know, do painting or I'm a singer or I'm a musician or whatever the case. Right. That is their role. And another part of that role, aside from your occupation, is do I want to have a family? Do I want to get married? Do I want to live here? Do I, do I want to do volunteer work? Do I want to do it's really just kind of. Um, putting in place those building blocks of your life in every facet and, and you like claiming that as your role, that's your role. Right. And we have many different roles in life. So establishing who we are in the workplace, who we are in our, you know, personal life and, 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 you know, uh, in our community and, and how we show up in these different spaces, that's all a part of my role. That's a part of my identity. Right. If you don't have that, if you don't know, well, what am I good at? Which path am I going to take? Uh, uh, you know, what's important to me? What are my values? What are my beliefs? If I don't really know where I stand on any of that, then there's confusion. And basically, it leaves me at other people's mercy to tell me who I am, okay. to tell me what my role needs to be. Okay. Right. And so that's that's kind of where you find yourself in a very uncomfortable space where you don't know who you are what your role is, um, and you find yourself making a lot of mistakes, a lot of regrettable mistakes. Well, and you're vulnerable to outside influence in that moment, right? And so- 100%. For you, what that looked like was, I know what this looks like in my home life, but then at school is my role like a gangster because that's where I'm getting attention. And so there was there was some confusion between, I kind of want to be an artist and I've got these interests- but that's really not supported in my environment. So where do I go? Exactly. That's not reinforced, right? The behavior that was reinforced was stealing cars and going to jail and skipping school. And, and that's the thing. So like in this subculture, right? It's basically, now they call it counterculture because subculture denotes less than and they don't want to be stigmatizing. So they say a counterculture. Counterculture to mainstream society. So if mainstream society says, I have to wear my pants up on my waist, Counterculture is going to say, no, I'm going to sag my pants. Okay. If, 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 if mainstream culture says you work hard to pay your bills, counterculture says to hell with that. I'm going to sell drugs and do it my way. Mm -hmm. So it's any way to basically, because if you feel like you're locked out of mainstream society and that culture, then you're going to do everything you can to be the absolute antithesis of that. Right. So anything you say that I should do, I'm going to do the opposite. Right. And that in turn, builds an identity it builds a culture because we have our own customs we have our own norms we have our own worldview we have our own behaviors we have our own language we have our own dress code right and all of that constructs a culture and so that's what i have bought into so mm -hmm. as much as my parents were you know influential when i was younger we know that once you hit that pre-adolescent adolescent phase and you hit that identity versus role confusion uh, uh, a psychosocial development phase in your life, your peer group becomes central, right? Mm -hmm. And your independence starts to take root and you want that independence. Now, it's not to say that your parents don't mean anything to you. In fact, they've done studies and a lot of kids 
as much as they're trying to establish their identity and gain some independence, they still want their parents to be parents. Right. And a lot of parents make the mistake to think, oh, if I'm more of my kid's friend, then they'll, you know, we'll have this close bond. No, that's not, that's not what kids actually want. They want you to support their independence. They want you to support them trying on different identities, but they still need guidance through that. They still need correction when correction needs to happen. So that actually leads me into, because I've got some questionings around that. So what, so could your parents have done anything differently in your opinion? I do. And, you know, like I'm reluctant to castigate them in that way because people, people give what they, what they have. Right. And I just don't, I, I, I just don't think my parents had what it took to straighten out my behavior. Right. Now they could have, I think if they had supported me more in, in my um, aspirations of going to college and, you know, nurturing, you know, my, my, my talents, because I was gifted and I, I was in advanced art for three out of the four years in high school. And as much as I skipped school, I made sure I was in art class every day because right. that was my sanctuary. And so had they kind of nurtured that and encouraged that, then I think it would have gave me more belief in myself to make, and if they would have been, I think, stricter when my friends, you know, my friends came over every day after school. And this was the one house of all of, you know, in my entire friend group where we could drink and smoke weed upstairs, right? right? My dad was working. Now, God bless my dad. He was working, you know, uh, 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 swing shift. So he was gone, you know, from two to, to midnight and mom's health was de deteriorating at that time. Not to mention my dad was, you know, having an affair and, you know, I think it put my mom in a depression. She just wasn't equipped to rein in, you know, teenage boys who had started to run amok at that point. So I don't know to say, could they have done more, I guess, in theory, but I think they, they did the best they could with what they knew. So let's make it different then out, not them specifically. What would you say to a parent of someone else who is maybe raising their child in a community similar to yours? What would you advise for a family to do, a parent to do, if they want to keep their child protected from those influences, if anything, what would you suggest? I think you absolutely have to keep a close eye on who they're hanging around. I mean, it was no secret the guys that we were hanging around were into bad stuff, right? You do not allow them to come over and hang out with your kid and influence your kid when you get out of school. But I think you also make sure you keep that bond that was formed in, you know, in those early formative years, you keep that bond intact, right? You have candid conversations with your kids, not just, you're not just always looking to, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, 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 you know, what do you have going on in your life? Like you're looking to nail them on something, but you just, you know, explore what they're interested in, right? Nurture things that, you know, that they might take interest in because if a kid knows that, an adult is going to be behind their interests. It makes them more interested. If they don't feel that, you know, what they might be interested in is doesn't really matter to mom or dad if I pursue this or not, then the kid's going to kind of lose interest and lose momentum. So I think if you if, if you keep that, you know, as much time as you spend with them when they were younger, you keep that closeness there, you keep that guidance there, you allow them that independence, but you still, you know, have a, a, a watchful eye. And you're not so critical. So here's the thing. They've done a lot of studies on this. And a lot of people think that, you know, parenting, especially as they get older, that the more you punish your kid, it will correct that bad behavior. No, they have found that reinforcing positive behavior will, you know, be much more influential in getting your kids to do what you want them to do than punishing bad behavior. It's not to say you don't punish at all ever, but you want to have the emphasis on you know, rewarding good, productive, positive behavior um, rather than just always punishing, 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 because then your kid's going to start to build resentment and not see you as an ally, but see you as an enforcer and an authoritarian. And that's not what you want because you're putting a further separation between your kids. So keep that close bond. Have those open, candid conversations. Don't punish them any chance you get, right? If they admit that they did something wrong, it shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> an open invitation to just punish with a heavy hand. But there's got to be some authoritative correcting, obviously. And but, um, you know, just that nurturing and 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 that guidance and that support, you yeah. know? Yeah. Wow. That's so helpful. So I want to ask you this, too, because I heard you say this on another podcast and it was one of my favorite things that you said in your interview. 
every year you talked about the victim impact statements. Also, I have a question for you. It looked like when you were, re were you eyes closed? Do you have them memorized or were you reading them just now when you went over the impact statements? I'm just curious. No, no I have them memorized. You have them memorized. Okay. 100%. You guys can't see him, but he closed his eyes and recited those impact statements from memory. Something about that just struck me. You've got them memorized. You spoke about forgiveness and that they said that they forgave you. You spoke about in December every year, you would start to really get down on yourself and then you worked through that. Talk about that. Right. So this happened obviously December 31st of 03. And so I remember for the first three or four years of my incarceration, um, you know, I had all this momentum for the first 11 months. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking these classes. I'm learning about my addiction and breaking down everything I needed to. But then the month of December would come and I would just get into this rut. And what it was is for every day of December, I would force myself to relive every vivid detail of that day and what led into the crash. And I think that I was, I was, you know, I thought in a weird twisted way that that was me honoring them and their lives by making sure that I would never forget what happened to them and what I did to them. But it was really just punishing myself because I would literally like for 11 months of the year, I was outside working out. I'm playing softball. I'm, you know, this jovial guy and, and, you know, things are, things are not bad. But then for December, I was the opposite. I stayed on my bunk a lot. I was not going outside to do things, you know, self-care things. And I was depressed and I was, I was in a miserable state. And, you know, three or four years later, after doing this every month of December, it dawned on me that I am not fulfilling this, this vow that I made, you know, if for every month of December, I'm, you know, wasting energy into this pitiful state of misery. And so, you know, if anything, I need to channel this energy into this mission. 365 days of the year, 12 yeah. months, not 11 months, right? Not 335 days, right. but 365 days. And so once I realized that, Martin, you're actually dishonoring their lives by keeping yourself in this state for an entire month, you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to switch that. You got to change that. So I was able to just throw off the shackles of shame and fully commit 12 months of the year into this mission and into this drive. But I'll tell you, it was it was quite a process. You know, shame is a real thing, especially when you know you're responsible for two beautiful, beautiful human beings no longer being here. And obviously that is something I will never forget, right? But I also show up every day and do the work that I'm doing today to make sure that I never forget what happened. So there's, there's, there's a way to properly not forget. And yeah. I was not doing that for, for the first three or four years. That's so, so powerful because I think about that now too. Like, so my dad is like really important to me, like most important, my dad is very, very important to me. And I think sometimes, well, if he dies, maybe I'll just use again. But then I think like that would be the worst way to honor his life would right. be for me to use, you know, his proudest thing is that I'm, I'm clean finally. And so I just think that that's so powerful. What you said is that you're honoring them because it almost feels like you're honoring them by punishing yourself. Right. But the reality is that's not true because you could continue that work during that time. And I just, I think that that's such a powerful way to look at that. So when did you, well, let's, I want to take you back because I just diverted you for like 20 minutes. You were doing the impact statements while you were in jail. Let's go there and then talk about when you got out and what you're doing now. Absolutely. So I started to first tell my story at the DUI victim impact panels within the prison. And again, there was so much, you know, cathartic healing in those spaces. So you hear about the restorative justice model, um, which is quite different than our retributive model of, of you know, crime and punishment in America. But um, it makes sense that if if crime, when crime happens in the community, then the community feels the pain of that. Right. That's an offense to the community. So if the if the pain is felt in a communal sense, it would thus make sense that the healing has to happen in a communal sense. 
which actually brings victim and offender together in a space where, again, there's full accountability and remorse and contrition on the offender side. And there's, a, you know, accountability and, and, and expression and, and um, you know, the story being told on the other side to where the empathy is felt. And then, but it, the offender is still a part of the community. They don't feel like, well, they can never go back to the community because the community wants nothing to do with them. And they're just evil, terrible, horrible person who doesn't deserve a second chance. Right. And so there was so much cathartic energy that happened in that room. And I was able to make some really solid connections with people so that years later, when I got out, last year on June 28th of 21 is when I released and I was able to immediately start speaking at DUI victim impact panels throughout Oregon. And I had also recorded my video while I was still inside and they put it on YouTube and it's, um, it's got like 23,000 views or something like that, but it was widely circulated throughout the country during the pandemic when all the panels had shut down and they needed online content. Okay. So my story was being heard around the country still is today. I've gotten a lot of messages from people who, you know, say, oh, we still use your panel. We still use your video at our panel. And, you know, uh, people really resonate with it and things like that. So I speak to first time DUI offenders in person at panels. I also work uh, with the trauma nurses at the hospital where the guy had survived the crash, thankfully. But they do panels every month and for first time DUI offenders. So I speak with them or to their panel remotely every month. And I've gone into a couple of high schools. I'm going to be going into some high schools here in Pennsylvania now that I live here. And I work uh, my nine to five is a substance abuse counselor. I work on the lines. So in Oregon, uh, they decriminalize small amounts of drugs, right, to funnel people into treatment instead of jail, which is an incredible thing. So what happens is when people get cited for small amounts of drugs, the judge sends them to me or one of my colleagues and they'll call in and I'll do a screening with them over the phone. And then I'll give them a certificate of completion that they can take to the judge and the judge uh, uh, wipes away the fine. But that's an opportunity for me to have a candid conversation about the need for treatment, right? You get some people who are in pre-contemplation, don't think they have a problem. A lot of people are at least in contemplation. They're thinking about you know, okay, this might be an issue. I might need treatment. And so that's my way of, I use my story to, to, to build that rapport with them, to let them know that I've, you know, I've been there and that there is help. And so then I'm able to provide them with any resources uh, in their community to get them connected with treatment. Then we do follow-ups kind of on a case management basis. And I also um, uh, work with clients uh, privately as well. I just started that a couple of weeks ago really fortunate, um, you know, to do that. I do AA. I have an AA meeting here uh, in my community, all middle-aged white guys. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter because even though we may not have a whole lot in common, the one thing we have in common at the very least is this disease. Yeah. And I know that anything I say in that room is going to resonate, right? They're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about. And so that's where I go to get my support, right? Mm -hmm. I have a twin brother. I love him to death. I cannot talk to him about my addiction because he doesn't understand, right? And God bless him. I'm glad he doesn't understand because he, you know, that would mean he was an alcoholic as well. So I get my support that way. I get my reinforcement by working on the lines and talking to people who are struggling with substance abuse and suicide. I work on the National Suicide Prevention Line as well through 988. And uh, yeah, I get to speak at panels and I speak to kids who have gotten their first minor in possession charge. And um I do a lot of traveling as well. And life is yeah. great. Awesome. I do a lot of, I've been to the Bahamas. I've been to Vegas. I've been to DC a couple of times. And I've been up to Seattle to see my Ducks play. And I've been to, you know, college games and and, and pro games and uh, going to Houston next month and New Orleans. And I mean, it's just, life is so beautiful. And let me just say this really quick. I know, you know, probably getting short on time, but about six months before I got out, um, I started to worry a little bit if life was going to be boring, sober, because I hadn't been free and sober for how many years. Yeah. And so a part of me was a little, you know, trepidatious about that. And let me just say that since I have been out and I've done everything that I've done and I'm, I'm you know, the world is opening up to me. Like I have lived my absolute best life. I, you know, moved to a beautiful newly built house here in Pennsylvania. We just put a gigantic swimming pool in the backyard. I didn't even know how to swim. I took swim lessons 
from May until September. So I at least know I won't drown in my pool. Yeah. But like, I've gone skydiving, I've gone surfing, I've gone rock climbing, like all this stuff that I had never done before, never thought I would do. I'm afraid of heights. What am I doing jumping out of a plane? But when, you know, when you have this newfound recovery and this new life opening up to you, you just want to try new things. You want to be adventurous, right? And to know that I can do all these things and be sober and remember the next day what I did the previous day, man, it's an awesome thing. It is such an awesome thing. So, you know, yeah, I didn't know what to expect coming out and the world has changed and, you know, 17 years later and technology and, and society, I mean, just imagine. Well, yeah, um, there's, there was no iPhones then or no. social media or, so you haven't been out that long. What was your, although I've asked other people on the show and they've said, look, we had iPhones inside. Don't worry about it. Have you seen an iPhone before? Negative. Really? No. Yeah, no. Um, so when I went in, we had, I had the little Nokia, you know, little touch yeah. button phone, uh -huh. but in, in Oregon prisons, there's no cell phones. I know in California, everybody's got a cell phone and other yeah. prisons. That's not the case in Oregon. Okay. People are not smuggling in phones and, and all that. They're getting drugs in, okay. but no, I had never seen a cell phone while I was inside. That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. So you haven't even been out that long. I've been out now. Let's see. It was June of last year. So July, August, September, October. So 16 months now. Wow. So what would you say is the, if you had to pinpoint one or two or three things. So, so you're an AA person. Is that your recovery now? Would you consider yourself a 12 step person? Absolutely. Okay. So what would you say is one of the most integral parts of your recovery now with somebody with now you've been so 20 years? Uh, so a little over 18 and a half years. Okay. So yeah, what 19. keeps you sober now that you're out on a daily basis? Honestly, structure. Because in prison, like there was structure. And so and so I, I made sure that I kept sober. Like, you know, I worked out and I went jogging and I went to church and I did AA. And, you know, I took the solitude because I'm an introvert. So I made sure I have some solitude throughout the day. I have a job. I tried to mirror that as much as I could when I got out here. It took a little time to get things set up. But I bought a home gym. I work out five days a week. Every day when I get off work at 3.30, I'll go for a walk or I'll go for a jog. I have my music the same way I did inside, yeah. right? I do my AA meetings. I'm doing service work. And so to, you know, again, that bio, psycho, social, spiritual model of recovery is, is you know, that's it. Biologically, so, 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 bio so if you think about, so biologically, when we were in our addiction, we were obviously putting chemicals in our body. We weren't getting enough sleep, probably. We were not, you know, taking care of ourselves. Um, so biologically, we were we were neglecting ourselves. Psychologically, I didn't regulate my emotions. I wasn't, you know, going to meetings and processing my feelings and things like that. I was numbing it with alcohol. Socially, I wasn't hanging around the right people, obviously. And spiritually, I was bankrupt. So if all four of those areas were compromising my addiction, it thus would make sense that I give attention to those four areas in my life and my recovery. What are right? they again? Say the four areas again. So, so biologically, okay. Psychologically, socially, and spiritually. Okay. The bio, psycho, social, spiritual model okay. of recovery. So how do you give to those in recovery one by one by one? So today I get seven to eight hours of sleep every night. Okay. I work out four to five days a week. I go on walks regularly. In fact, when I'm done here, I'm gonna at least go ride the, the stationary bike in the basement for a half hour, you know. And and so and so I'm making sure that I'm taking taking care of my bi my biological self. And I eat, you know, healthy about 75% of the time, right? Psychologically, I talk to people. I use my support system. If something is going on with me and I'm feeling a certain way, I don't hold that in. I talk to people around me, right? I'm trying to figure out why am I feeling this way? Where is this coming from? I know how to regulate my feelings, regulate my emotions, but mainly I use my support system to be able to process psychologically what I'm going through. Socially, I know how to set boundaries. That was something that did not exist before in my life. And I was at everybody's you know, mercy to do whatever they wanted me to do. Today, I am assertive and I assert that boundary with people and I have healthy relationships. And um, you know, it's based on a mutual respect. And so if somebody's not good for me in my life and they don't respect the boundary, then they'll find themselves not in my life. It's as simple as that. 
And then spiritually, I have a spiritual program. My my mind is AA, and I go to church some here and there, but mainly it's AA. And knowing that there's got to be a power greater than me for me to lean on because, you know, my best thinking got me in the worst places, right? So that's how I, you know, maintain that balance across the board. So the one key piece is to have balance across all aspects of your life so that that way, you know, even if you start to slip in one or two areas, you still have those other two or three anchors. And that's the whole thing. So many people, they'll give everything into, you know, the bio, you know, the biological part. Oh, I'm working out 15 hours a day and I'm eating this. But you're not, you don't have a spiritual program. You're not, you know, seeing a counselor or talking to people about what's going on, right? You can't put all your eggs in one basket because when that goes, what do you have? Yeah. You have to have anchors, Right. You have to have multiple anchors to keep you grounded. And so that way, you know, even if one starts to come up a little bit, you still have the other three or four. I love that. That's so cool. So that's, so that's like more of the psychological description of AA. I just, I never like knew that term. I love that. Cause I'm a, I'm a 12 step person also. Since I've been doing the show, I've seen there are so many different modalities of recovery. But right. I'm a 12 step person also. Yeah. So well, where can everybody find you? Where can everybody find your book and, and find your, where, where, where can everybody find you? So I'm only on one social media platform. In fact, I told myself, you know, before I got out, I'm never doing social media because I had heard all these negative things about it when I was inside. But thankfully, there's a huge recovery community on Instagram. So I am on Instagram at Martin L. Lockett. And then the books are either at my website, martinlockett.com, or simply just go to Amazon and type in Martin Lockett and you'll see a couple books. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Is, is there anything else that I haven't asked that you would like to add or anything before I let you go? Uh, no, this was this was a, a, an amazing interview. Um, you are doing tremendous work with this platform, and I've listened to your interviews before. And just thank you for allowing me to be here and share my story. And I hope it resonates uh, with people. Um, you know, I've, I tell people all the time: as long as we're breathing, there is hope. And so, to, for you to not feel that there's no hope, if you are alive, there's hope, and you can reach out to nine eight eight. You'll talk to somebody like myself or one of my wonderful colleagues or whatever state you're in. And you can talk to somebody who will sit with you in that moment, validate your feelings, empathize with what you're going through, and then most importantly, get you connected with mental health and substance use resources in your area. So please, please do reach out and know you are not alone. We'd be more than happy to help. Wow. Well, thank you so much. You are, you're an amazing speaker. You're an amazing author. I, I just, I, I think you're going to do great things. You've only been out a little over a year. I'm just so impressed by you and your presence and your speaking. And I, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh